Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Hi, this is Ryan Frederick, Principal at AWH. This is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products and product management, product discipline, all things product. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Brett Buchanan, who represents all of those things. Brett, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, we've known each other for a number of years, and yeah. I've had a quite of these, a few of these similar discussions. And yeah, we've ranted about product, <laughs> you know, uh, more times than I can count at this point. Yeah, and so you know, to that end, you are probably the catalyst and driver of product and the product conversation and the product community in Columbus. I could go down the list of uh, Product Camp the Lyft product conference now, which is, you know, I think becoming a, a pretty well-established conference or around product now that, that you lead that happens in Columbus, the Columbus product club, which is a little bit more of an informal, uh, you know, gathering of product people. So thank you for doing all of that first. I mean, I know given the fact that some of the things that, that I'm involved in and have done over the years, that it takes a fair amount of time and energy and commitment to do those things in addition to the you know the stuff that actually pays the bills. So thank you first. And two, why do those things? Why get involved? Why do you have a passion for advancing product as a as a craft in in Columbus and beyond? Yeah. Um, so I, I started the product club about three three or four years ago, and really it was for a couple reasons. I had just interviewed for for some roles in California. And uh, my wife and I had decided at the time that we, we wanted to stay in Columbus. We love it here. We wanted to raise our family here. So I started looking for, for a job here in town. I had done product management for about seven years at the time and couldn't find a, a job here in Columbus. And it was kind of surprising to me at the time. I had just received an offer from Google and, and had been interviewing with Apple. And so it seemed odd to me that I could get a job at these great companies, but couldn't find something here locally. And so I really started to think about why that might be. And I think it was, you know, I think looking back, it was probably two reasons. One was product management wasn't that present here in town. The role was still pretty immature. A lot, you didn't see it at a lot of companies. And I think the other reason was I just didn't have really a network uh, of professionals that I had been, been working with. I've been working for a company out of California for three or four years at that time. And so I really wanted to do something that, you know, we wanted to stay here in Columbus. So I wanted to do something for the community. I had seen at the time the impact that product management could have on an organization and wanted to build a club around that and really kind of mature that discipline here in town. And then also wanted to just personally build out a network of people that were also passionate about about product management, and so uh, we had we had our first meetup. It was a colleague of 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 mine, Scott Vandegrift, and I did a meetup on five tips for product managers. We said, "Let's let's see what happens here." <laughs> the old the old lure of the easy five tips to great success, right? We're like, right. "Well, that sounds easy. This this will uh, hopefully be interesting for people." And 
we'll see who shows up and we will spend the last 20 minutes talking to those people and see, you know, how, what they'd like to get out of the club as we move forward. And so there was like 60 or 70 people that showed up to that meetup. And so more than what we expected and a ton of energy and really passionate people, people that have really gotten to know well over the years. And so did did that give you some assurance, confidence that there was this sort of underlying, but, you know, under-evolved interest in product as a discipline. And there were people that, that either considered themselves product people and product managers or that wanted to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there was the, the passion was there for sure. And there was also this eagerness to learn more about it. And so that was, that's really what our mission is of the club. It's let's, let's bring people together to share ideas and, and learn from each other. And that's really been kind of our, our mission as we've considered different events and things like that is how can we bring people together through conferences, through meetups, through product camp or unconference to do that? Yeah, that's great. So as you think about your journey, how did you get into product and, and product management initially? And, and was it something that was very intentional? And, and how did you get sort of exposed to it and become aware of it? Or was it more sort of opportunistic that, oh, this looks like it might be cool. I mm-hmm. don't really know that much about it, but seems to like strike a lot of chords that make sense. Yeah, I was a business analyst at, at Abercrombie & Fitch. This was 11 or 12 years ago. I don't think at the time I had even heard of product management and was helping launch PayPal. And this was still pretty early in the in the PayPal days. And so they connected us with someone from Nike who was a product manager. And she helped me understand the use cases and how to actually operationalize and support PayPal, but was also incredibly helpful in... But she also really helped me understand her role. So I think we spent like five months working on this PayPal project. And probably the majority of the discussion the last two and a half months was around her role and how it fit into Nike's organization. And so... Did Nike charge you guys for for her time and her sort of consulting? Or was that just a thing that that they wanted to help PayPal evolve maybe? So that's why they they did it? I think they had some type of relationship with PayPal. Okay. And and they were helping... PayPal was maybe, you know making their time and effort worth helping you guys get up and running? I would imagine there was some type of interchange savings deal that they had worked out with Nike being kind of like a merchant who had already launched and can help other merchants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Because otherwise, I mean, wow, how generous and, and you know, um, amazing of her to do this con- this coaching and this consulting. Yeah. I mean, regardless of Either the way, PayPal deal. The, still pretty cool. The, it was amazing. And I am still so appreciative to this day. Do you stay in touch help. with her still? Uh, occasionally on LinkedIn. Yeah. We'll, we'll send notes and, and keep in touch. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. At the time, was incredibly grateful and, and still am to this day. And, and we had a really small digital organization at the time. If you think about Abercrombie and Fitch 15 years ago, everything was about the store experience, right? And so I approached our head of digital and said, hey, there's, there's this thing called product management. It sounds like an extension of what I'm doing as an analyst, but has an opportunity to be more impactful and, and more strategic. I'd love to, to convert my role. And so we had some conversations and a couple months later, a few of us were converted to product managers. And so I spent the next three years helping build products, but also helping build out 
the product management teams at, at A&F. And then after that, left and went to Gap. Gap's a, a really interesting retailer in that they have a very mature product and software development organization. They hired a guy named Toby Link. You might have heard of him. He was on the cover of Time Magazine as being like the example of the dot-com bubble. And so Toby founded eToys.com, IPO'd it for a ton of money, and then dot-com bubble hits, and, and shortly after, they're, they're closing their doors. And so after eToys, he came to Gap as the chief product officer. And so he... And this was 10-ish years ago. And so he... Uh, he was really instrumental in creating that technology and product foundation at Gap. He brought some people from Netscape, people that worked with Marty Kagan, and these really talented and seasoned product people with him to Gap. And so when I joined, I was excited about the products I was working on, but I was 10 times more excited about working and learning with these, these amazing product leaders. And so through my experience there, I learned a lot about what product management really looks like, particularly for companies that are, that are located in like the Silicon Valley area mm-hmm. and the impact that it's having inside of those companies. I spent the last three years at Gap helping define some of the product development lifecycle. I was in a director role. And so helping hiring strategies, helping define what, what product meant to us as an organization uh, we went through agile transformations, DevOps transformations, data transformations, design transformations. It was all culture, the transformations that you can do. Well, it was a culture of continuous improvement. And so what was really exciting about that was in that role, I was able to bring my product perspective to those discussions. And so what does a DevOps transformation mean as it relates to product management and to being from a product perspective. Yeah, and providing a better user experience, right? And driving m- more value, right? Through the, you know, the entire spectrum of operating and, s- and serving customers. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, you know, whether it's DevOps or it's QA and, and other operations as part of the, the software development continuum, it's easy to lose sight of, well, how are those connected back to making sure that we're building a good product that is successful, that users value, and then that drives the the outcomes that both users want and we want and need as a business. Yeah, that's right. And we were able to apply those same frameworks to our like organizational transformations. And so we weren't doing DevOps to do DevOps. We were doing DevOps to solve some type of problem. And so we applied a lot of those same things that you'd apply to, to building a product to our transformation. What problem is this solving? How big do we think this problem is? How can we pilot a new process or a new way of working to this problem and experiment a little bit and figure out you know, what, what's going to solve this for us? Like What works for Gap as it relates to DevOps? What doesn't work? And then how do we kind of amplify those things that we find to be working? Yeah. And, and, you, and so the couple, there's a couple of things that on, in there that I want to that I want to peel back, you mentioned, you know, culture, and then you, you were just commenting on, well, what works for Gap, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the traps that we can fall into is, is we see someone else doing something well, or maybe not even well, better than us. 
And then we think, oh, well, they're doing it better than us. We should just do what they're doing. And then people don't sort of take a step back and say, okay, well, how is that going to work inside of our current operation, structure, culture, mindset, et cetera? And so it, it's this weird, um, almost like copycat approach of, well, they're doing it better than us, so let's just do what they're doing, and maybe that'll work for us, instead of sort of taking the time to say, they're doing it better than us, why? And then if we, d if we were to do it the way they're doing it, how do we ingest that and how do we operationalize that to make sure that, that we're not only going to do what they're doing, but we're going to do it better inside of our organization? Yeah, exactly. I think that copycat approach doesn't work for product development and it doesn't work for transformation, right? Like I think there's good things that you can take from other products or competitors and, and kind of steal those ideas. Yep. Similar to transformation, you can do some of that but what I think people miss sometimes is the amount of real work it takes for Spotify to have developed their processes and culture and how they're organized. You know, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people I meet with who are saying, hey, we want to we turn into the Spotify model, or we want to use squats, or we want to use Airbnb's frameworks or something like that. And what I, what I try to help convey is that it was a lot of work and continuous improvement for all of those companies to get to where they're at. And you can't just, you know, you can't just snap your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. <clears throat> There's no silver bullet. Right. right? That we're going to go from where we are to that more evolved state and think that it's going to happen quickly and without some pain and hand wringing, you know, and, and significant evolution probably of the culture and of the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. So you're doing um, you're doing consulting now. You are your own product company, an entity now, and we talked about that several times, right? Just sort of personally about the fact that you you had this desire to um, you know do your own consulting and and dig in and put out your own shingle. Why did you have? Why were you feeling the the desire to do that and and the need to do that? And is it? Um, are you going to are you going to expand that, or are you happy just doing your sort of individual consulting efforts of going into an organization and helping them evolve their product craft inside of the an operation inside of the company? Yeah, um, I think I guess to answer your first question, it's product is something I'm passionate about as a career. I love it. It's interesting to me. It's very challenging, and so I'm attracted to it for that reasons. For attracted to the consulting side of it for those reasons. Through the product club, I've had a lot of exposure to some of the challenges that companies around town are facing. And I think a lot of them are a result of not having product management in place. And so I think that there's a demand there. And I think because of my experience and having gone through how to establish product management inside of, inside of companies, there's just a natural fit. How, so, re how ready are companies that don't have a product discipline now? They say they want it in your experience so far, anecdotally and maybe directly. How ready are those companies to sort of step up to the plate and, and actually do it in a way that's going to be meaningful and impactful? From my experience, I think they're, for the most part, pretty ready for two reasons. One, they, they say that they want to do it, and I think that they actually mean it. 
because they're they're dealing with those challenges and pains of not having it in place today. Particularly organizations who you see go through multiple agile transformations. Right. Uh, <laughs> if you've probably done more than two agile transformations, you probably need to become better at product. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and and they've optimized inside of their engineering teams and and a lot of that optimization happens inside of their processes and tools and and some of the philosophies over time get lost. And product helps helps balance that out and keep keep you focused on the problems you're trying to solve and really keeps you focused around why you're why you're agile in the first place. And so you know, I, I think I see what I see is companies who say they're ready for it. They mean truly are interested. They've and had enough. Willing. They've had enough suffering. Yeah. Where now they've made a conscious decision that if we don't get good at product, we shouldn't expect that we're going to produce better digital products than than we have in the past. Yeah, and and, and the, I think the third variable in this, and this is where companies are are. are at different levels is, do they know how hard it's going to be to make that move? Mm. Uh, most of the companies that I that I talk to recognize that it's a, a big change. Uh, it's one that you can take small steps and make incremental progress towards. That's probably the only way to do it. But it's not something that happens overnight. And I, I think they recognize that as well. Like this isn't a, a six-week change where we're going to be all of a sudden a product-led company for a multitude of reasons, you know, building out the skill sets. But not only that, there's existing history that people have that they have to dig out of. And right. so there's there's tech debt, there's contract debt, there's your, your existing feature roadmap that you've already committed to clients. And so digging out of that takes time as well. Yeah. And then there are the, the cultural team things, right? You might not have the right people, you know, to do product well. Yet. Yeah culturally and mindset and mm -hmm. perspective wise, you probably are not in, in a product place, right? Yeah. I think the mindset shift is a big part of it. Thinking differently about solving problems and, and really, to be honest with you, giving autonomy to teams to be able to do that is really difficult. You know, if we've worked in a way that planning and control has led to success, especially inside of big organizations and traditional management, right? Yep. That doesn't work anymore because the speed of technology, startups are just coming in and disrupting. And so companies can't plan out a year or two year or three year roadmap anymore and expect for that plan to work. There's too much change. There's too, too much disruption happening. Yeah. And I saw an article the other day I don't even remember who posted it or, or where the article was from, so I apologize. Uh, but the essence of the article was that technology isn't even causing as much of the disruption as customers are and customer expectations and customer demands. Mm -hmm. And that technology is a facilitator, right? But it's really all of us as customers of companies and businesses of other of other companies just you know, continually wanting more, faster, differently, you know, more easily. And it was an interesting article that that the guy was making the case that customers, right, are the ones that are driving most of the disruption now, and the technology helps facilitate it. But it, it it's more about customers saying, no, 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 that's not good enough now. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's right. 
I think the customer expectations changed more so than the technology potentially. I think that's just enabled that expectation to to change, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Do you think, because you mentioned Toby and his joining Gap as the chief product officer, is that a move that, that most companies need to make for product to be a respected discipline inside of the company, that they need a C-level product person representing and, and driving the mindset and the value of product? Or can you get good at product if you've not been good at it more bottom-up? Does it have to be top-down to work effectively? Can it be bottom-up or is it, can it be some combination thereof? I don't think that it needs to be represented at the C-level to be taken seriously. Okay. Um, with that being said, I think there needs to be a product perspective when there isn't someone at the executive level. And that that's really the risk. I think in most organizations that don't have a chief product officer, for example, I still think the product managers are taken seriously and, and, and well-respected by, by executives. I think the risk in not having someone at that level, though, is when you're, ha- when you're making really big decisions about your company and where it's headed and how you want to work as a company, you're missing that product perspective in those decisions. And so you probably have someone from marketing, technology, different C-suite kind of functions across your organization. If you don't have product represented, you're going to miss that piece when you're, when you're trying to make those type of decisions. Yeah. I've thought a lot about over the last you know, 10 years or so about you know, the different types of, of product mindsets, cultures, not sure what the right framing of it is, mm-hmm. but you look at companies and you can clearly tell that they're either you know, very design-driven from a product perspective um, because they value you know, the, the beauty and the polish more than they value other aspects, or that at least is, is at the top of the stack. And there are others that are technologically you know, driven you know, product approaches and, and firms where if the tech is killer, then that's at the top of the stack. And then there are others that are business model driven, those that are a little bit more branding sort of oriented, right? That that as long as it supports the brand, then you know the product doesn't have to be necessarily you know that technically powerful, et cetera. How do you sort of think about different companies and there's different approaches to product around how it then aligns with the rest of the organization? from a mindset and, and culture perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think, if you're, I think if you're focused primarily on one of those things, whether it's design or marketing or branding or your business model, I think as long as you're intentional about that, you'll be okay. But honestly, I wouldn't be comfortable with that because you're really putting at risk and giving competitors an opportunity to come in and exploit some of those areas that you're not focusing on or to put put to prioritize something else at the top of their stack right so if you've prioritized technical you know horsepower mm-hmm. right and that your your solution and your offering is just the best technically but maybe not awesome from a design and user experience perspective then yeah somebody else can say ah the opportunity for us from a product perspective is just to be beautiful and super polished. And even if the tech isn't quite as good, and then you, you now you're in this sort of horse race, you know, where you've each prioritized something differently. 
and maybe that's okay, maybe it's not, but but I do think that, that you know, sort of mindset culturally, organizations end up sort of gravitating toward one priority over another. Because if you look at, at most companies, like Google, great at product, obviously, but I think most people would agree that design and UI is not at the top of that list, right? They're sort of looking at it and saying, from a product perspective, I would say that simplicity, which I would think aligns with their brand, because Google's brand is really all about simplicity, right? How do we get you from the starting point to now you have some outcome as efficiently as possible? But design yeah. has often been left behind with them for yeah, products, th- right? Yeah, you're totally right. And I think Google would probably even say that that's, that's not a good thing. You know, I, and I think that's, they'd probably even say that they've experienced a lot of pain as a result of that. And that's probably an area they need to improve in. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I, I would think so too. I think it's hard to say that about Google because they're Google. Right, exactly. <laughs> and critique Google. Right, but, exactly. Let's sit here, right, yeah. and, and just break it down, you know, how, how much better Google could be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in most spaces, the people who are going to win are good at all of those things. And when I think about product, I don't necessarily think about product management. I think of a cross-functional team coming together. And that cross-functional team includes product design, obviously engineering, even different, more traditional business functions, operations or uh, legal, whatever, whatever it may be. And that's how I think about product. It's not, it's not necessarily a, a product management-led team, right? It's a, it's a product-led team made up of different functions across the organization. So do you think the proper way to then structure teams is, because one of the things that at least around software that Agile intended and mostly gets right when it's implemented properly is that you're supposed to have this very small, collaborative, intimate, iterating team that's not how agile gets implemented most often right we don't end up with these with these you know these very small functional uh, multidisciplinary teams it's just agile across the entirety of an organization do you think about product teams in the same light though that the best product teams are like SWAT teams and you've got all of the knowledge and all of the information and all of the access that you need inside of those small teams but the best product teams are typically multidisciplinary, but also very small and can move really quickly. Yeah. I, I think in order to move quickly, you, you need to have that. You need to have a small team that's made up of the right set of people who can bring the right skill sets and the right knowledge into one team to help move that team forward towards a goal. And so generally what I see is that team is made up of engineers, a product manager, and often a product designer, and sometimes a a technical lead. And then in cases where there's a more traditional business function that needs to be brought in, rather than going to, to legal every other day and scheduling a meeting, have someone from your legal team that's dedicated part time and actually embedded into the team to be part of that team. And then product marketing is is a function that you know, I think is, is critical in a lot of B2B or SaaS type of companies in having them embedded in the team as well. I know that 
a lot of companies don't have the luxury of having all of those roles inside of a team. And so you have to figure out what works for you and what works for your for your budget from a funding perspective and, and how you want to allocate money towards the resourcing or hiring of people. But in an ideal team, you would have all those functions together and embedded into one team. Where does it... So even in cases where a company is structuring teams properly, they've even been intentional about the right culture and the right mindset. Where have you seen it break down even when they sort of start with the right intent and from the right you know position? And, and then is it just that they lose sight of the fundamental principles along the way? Because you see that happening, right? Where and that's where I'm still thinking that that's where a CPO can come into play even, right, to ensure that down through the discipline of product, right, that there isn't a an erosion, right, over time yeah. around, a, around a particular team. Where have you seen it begin to break down if it starts out sort of pure and effective? So I think if you have, if you start out with the right cross-functional team, you've got all of the right people coming together. I think where I've seen it, fall over in those cases is when there isn't a clear sense of where the team needs to go or what the goal is for the team or the objective of the team, right? There's a lot of spin. There's a lot of confusion. In some cases, their goals are in the form of a plan. Build these things and these these capabilities and, and tell us when you're going to start the development and end the development. Yeah, very functionally oriented. Yeah, yeah. Very, very focused on the solution. That's when I've seen really good teams made up of the right people fall over is when they're focused on, you know, creating solutions for customers versus solving problems and achieving goals for the company. How much as part of that problem centricity is validation and should the team's purpose be to ultimately determine whether this is a problem that's worth solving and high value enough to continue, to, or should that have happened already before, before the team even gets, uh, gets assimilated? I believe bringing in the team as early as possible is the right thing to do. With that being said, I think that there's a level of upfront validation that needs to happen before engaging the team just out of respect for their time so that they can focus on other things. And that means thinking a little bit ahead. And so, for example, often the way I see this play out in the real world is there's data av available that indicates that there's some type of problem or some type of opportunity. And someone from one of the, the core business functions is analyzing that data. And I'm not talking about a six-month business plan, just some, some light analysis to support some type of hypothesis, right? And so let's say an example of that might be, we've got a funnel that we have built out and we see that there's some abandonment happening at, at a certain, certain step in the funnel. I think that's where the product team steps in after they've identified, hey, there's, there's abandonment issues at this point in the funnel product team, can you go and help us understand what problems might exist and how big of a problem those are and how our users are trying to solve that problem today and try to get a sense of, you know, how strong is that problem? How big is it, right? Is this something that we should really be going after? And that often happens in the, in the form of user interviews or prototypes. Uh, I'm a big fan of um, concierge MVPs. I've been using those a lot lately. 
uh, I was working on a project where we were building out a dashboard for some of our users. And I went and talked to, to 20 users. And they told us that they needed a bank balance. It was a platform that people could make monthly contributions to. And it was multiple people contributing into one bank. And so their problem was, I, you know, I, we're sharing a bank login, our password gets reset, and all of a sudden none of us can, can log into it, or someone forgets the password, and we need a way to, to automate this because it's not working in this manual way that, that we're doing it today. And so the problem at the beginning was, was give me a bank balance. And so we would go in every week, check their bank balance, send them an email with their bank balance, and what we found out was that that wasn't the actual problem. They said, actually, I, I need to know the transaction history. You know, how did we arrive how did, at... How did the balance become the balance? Yeah. How right. did we arrive at this balance? And so we built another report in Excel. Because it sounds like the underlying things there is there's trust, confidence issues around, okay, that's the balance. Who contributed? Who took out? Right. There were underlying things that were more important than the balance ultimately. Yeah, the idea for this platform was everyone was supposed to contribute the same amount every month. And so their problem at that, at that point in time was we don't have visibility to that. So we initially started by sending them the bank balance because we thought that was the problem. We did that in a really lightweight way. Yeah. They came back to us and said, actually, the problem is I need to see the transaction history. Right. So we built an Excel spreadsheet out and started sending them the transaction history every week, every Friday. And then they said, actually, we, we need this more frequently. Can you send it to us daily? And so our next version of it was sending an Excel spreadsheet to them daily. And then they said, actually, <laughs> what we really need here is we need to know when someone doesn't contribute each month. And so through that process, we were able to really understand what the problem was that they were experiencing. Because we, we thought that we understood the problem from the get-go because they were yep. telling us that was the problem. Yep. But in some really kind of low-tech, high-touch experiments, we were able to really understand what the problem was with minimal to no investment before we actually even built anything. And so what I like to see teams do is really get a, a sense of that problem early through experiments before they're even experimenting around the solution and how to solve that problem. And so from there, we could say, okay, there's, there's a problem. We understand it. They need some type of a learning mechanism to know when the other people in the group haven't made their, their deposits. And there's a lot of different ways we can solve for that. So now let's kind of shift from that problem exploration mode to the solution exploration mode and start to, to come up with different prototypes as to how we might solve for that and share that with our users. Yeah. But it, it is, you know, part of this goes back to human nature. And you've heard me talk about this a couple of times. Um, we are wired, we're wired to build and we're wired to solution mm -hmm. uh, because that feels like progress. And that feels like that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's our contribution, right? Is, oh, problem. I'm going to give you a solution because mm -hmm. I want to solve your problem. Mm -hmm. it, so it feels like that's, that's what we're supposed to do when that's almost um, always the wrong path, right? But it's challenging to do deep problem investigation and understanding. Yeah, It doesn't feel productive at the beginning because we're, we're also afraid 
that if we do deep problem understanding, that we might get to a point where this isn't a problem we're solving, or we can't identify a solution. And then all of the time that we spent understanding the problem feels like a waste because we didn't build anything. Yeah. How do you sort of think about that? It's interesting. I mean, for similar reasons, that's why we see companies say, can we build this versus should we build this? It's a lot easier to answer the question, can we build it, than it is, should we build it? And so what you see in those cases, and and this is where you start to see solution creep, is teams that are set out to solve problems start to shift their mentality towards some of those easier questions they can answer. Yep. And so there's a framework called jobs to be done stories that, that helps with that when you start sensing, hey, we're really focusing on solutions. Let's start to drift back towards really solving problems. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's cognitive bias is the technical term for that. Yep. Yeah, I see that happening in a lot of different, that are playing out in a lot of different ways. How does, so something else that is, that creeps in that's a little bit unknowing and, and this goes into having the right the right culture, the right mindset, and the right team in place is complexity bias. We're not innately wired to believe that you can solve complex problems with simple solutions. So we almost always want to tackle complex problems with complex solutions, and, and we don't dig in, and we don't spend enough time understanding the problem deeply enough. And then, as you sort of said, in solution exploration, well, how do we keep asking the question, can we do it more simply and more elegantly? Mm-hmm. And then ask it, and then ask again, and then ask again, and then ask again. Mm-hmm. And I think the companies that are really good at product are really good at overcoming this complexity bias because they keep asking themselves, could it be better? Could it be, more, could it be simpler? Could it be more elegant? How do you develop that? Is that just a, is that just a muscle that you strengthen over time, where you you just keep you know going back to the well, saying, okay, yeah, we've technically solved it, but could it be better? Could it be simpler? Yeah, I think there's a couple of factors that come into play there. I think what are the competing priorities with that? And so I think one of the things that that helps up front is understanding what success looks like at the end, and what are you really trying to solve for. Because what that allows you to do is know when you're done. That's kind of the the challenge, right? Is finding the balance of when do you continue to optimize versus when do you move on to the next problem to be solved. And so it's it's that fine balance. And I think that's where some of the experience comes in because you start to sense some of that out. Yeah. If you're really di- diligent about it, you're defining some type of hypothesis up front that conveys what outcome you're trying to achieve in a measurable way. And so I think once you've hit that outcome or hit your goal, that's the right time to take a step back and say, okay, we've completed the mission that we were set out to solve. Should we continue to optimize this and, and why? And what's the, the opportunities there? Or should we shift to something else and take on a totally different problem? Yeah. So we've talked quite a bit about culture. We've talked about team. We've talked about sort of fundamental principles, mindset. If someone is joining, and we talked early on about product transformation, a, a company that, that's currently not good at product, trying to enter into a new era of being good at product and developing a product discipline inside of the company. So if you're a product manager and a product person, either going into a company that already has a product discipline or going into a company that doesn't have one, how should 
product managers think about their own skill set, their own experience, their own perspective around product and aligning that with the where the company is and that company's culture and that company's perspective. Because what I see happening now, and I think this is going to happen uh, increasingly over time, is product managers going into organizations and then it not being and it being a miss, right? Because mm -hmm. as a product manager, you do have a belief right around the right way to do the role. And if that doesn't align with how the company sort of sees and views product management and product as a discipline, just because they're doing product or they want to do product still doesn't mean that it's going to be a good fit for you as a product manager. Yeah. So how does a company sort of evaluate that? And how does the, the person sort of evaluate that? Yeah, I think as a product manager, you have a belief as to what the role should look like. Product managers share a lot of personality traits, in my opinion. I think just generally speaking, they're curious people. They're problem solvers. You know, they see a problem, they want to they go solve it. They tend to be relentless for back of, lack of a better word, right? They, they, don't, uh, they don't give up. And so what I always recommend people doing when they're entering, interviewing for new jobs is asking the company, how do they determine what's, what's going to be built? And what, what does that process look like? How, does, how do you go from an idea to your build, measure, learn loop? And really, that's going to give you a good sense of how product-led that company is and how committed they are to being product-led. Because I think if you hear an answer like, you know, we have this really strong vision for where we need to go, and there's these obstacles standing in the way of us accomplishing those goals, and we really look for this team to help us figure out how to get there. You know, we give them autonomy to solve this problem. That to me shows a really mature product-led organization and one that is going to give the teams the right autonomy. They're going to allow them to experiment. They understand that, that things are going to change and some of those experiments are going to fail. Where I get concerned is if a company says something like, we go through this lengthy process to develop business cases for, um, for a list of features or projects, and we prioritize those business cases and determine what's the, the highest ROI, and those are the things we're going to, to go after. There's not a lot of room to account for uncertainty or change in, the, in those plans. And I think a product manager is going to really struggle in that space because they're really becoming a service function at that, at that level. Like, how do you execute against a, a, a plan? And I don't think they're going to be leveraged to the extent that they'd probably like to be leveraged. The other kind of red flag, and this is difficult, especially for early stage startups, and it, it has to happen to some degree, is how contract-led are you? you know, how sales-led are you? It's incredibly difficult for companies to pass up on revenue opportunities, uh, especially in the early stage. But there's an inflection point, I think, where that, that really is going to hinder your scale. Whether that's at $150 million or at $15 million, who knows? But there has to be a point in time when you shift from that sales-led organization to be a more product-led organization just for the, the purposes of scaling, if, if scaling is your goal. Yeah, I think being product-led is um, a relatively new concept mm -hmm. right? because we don't yet, by and large, have confidence being product-led 
and product driven gets us the outcomes that we want because enough people haven't had experience being product driven and product led. Mm -hmm. So they almost always fall back to, well, what is someone willing to buy? What is someone, someone willing to pay for today? And that's what we're going to give them. And I think that's true, whether startup, enterprise, or, or in between, right? Mm-hmm. It is we just don't have enough experience, right, in, in the aggregate to be confident that if we're product, if we're doing product the right way, that we can be sort of product led and we're going to get the outcomes that we want. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage. And what we try to help companies do is figure out how to get there more iteratively because it, it's a really, it's a it's a big shift to make for a lot of different reasons. One, just haven't having worked in that way, it's it's risky. Like if you've never seen that before and yeah. you're turning away contracts, that's that's scary. And, and so, how do we start to do that in in small ways to prove that out and get people more comfortable with it? Yeah, I saw a, you know a tweet the other day, and and you know this is not this is not an epiphany, but we're still not seeing it that widely adopted. If you build something that people love and people value, that never has failed, right? If you build something that people can't live without and solves an acute problem for them, mm-hmm. that never ha- that that's never failed, right? Where if you are focused on you know sales and you're focused on another approach to to informing the product, right? Then that's risky. So. I think we're beginning to have a mindset shift that product driven and being almost obsessed, right, with giving people and providing people something that solves a high value problem in a way that they care about, that that actually is an insurance policy that you're going to get the outcomes that you want, where, you know, being sales led, marketing led, et cetera, and then discounting that product customer fit value proposition piece yeah. As, as further down the stack, that's actually a more risky proposition. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we've seen work to help companies get more comfortable or confident in shifting from sales-led to product-led is actually having product managers on those sales calls. And so it's one thing for your sales team to get on board with, hey, we're, we're not going to build individual features for clients that aren't scalable. That's That's one challenge. The yep. second challenge is convincing your your clients that's also not the right approach. Yeah, and so that that's not in their best interest. Yeah, ultimately. exactly. And so when we try to re- almost reverse engineer those conversations. And so when clients come to, to, to the businesses we work with, with, with feature ideas or capability ideas, we try to ask them, can you help us give us more context? You know, what is it that you're trying to solve here? Oh, so your, your bet that is if we do this capability, you think it's going to have this type of positive outcome? Okay, what, what data do you have to support that? Okay, do you care if we actually go and validate that with, with users in the market that are, that are using the product today? And then we can start to sense out, and, and it's beneficial for the client to take this approach or for the, you know, for the business's client to take this approach because what ends up happening is nine times out of 10, the original feature that they came to to this business with ends up being looking different because there's a better understanding of the problem. There's a better understanding of, of how we can solve that problem. And that, that happens through just the team's discovery process and, and research and, and talking to users. Yeah, for sure. And all of that ultimately bubbles up to mindset and culture, right? And, and how do you 
how do you value product right mm-hmm. uh, against the other disciplines and not even against um that makes it sound you know um you know competitive but how do you value it uh at the same level that you do the other disciplines in the company sales marketing operations finance right because mm-hmm. if if you get to the point of saying we're going to be product driven and we're going to be product led then that means that you are collaborating with sales and marketing and operations. And now you're at a place where you probably have the ability to do product well and have it to be a real value add for the company and a market differenti- a market differentiator ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's especially true for SaaS companies. And in some cases, you know, because your customer isn't your user. And so... In a lot of ways, what we're trying to do is almost bring those customers in to the product team so that we understand the problem that they're trying to solve. And in doing that, you know, and I think the trick there is is being able to frame the conversation in a really clear and concise way as to why we're actually taking this approach versus going and building it. Right. And so one of the things we've done in the past is kind of exposed where clients have have given us a feature and it didn't have the impact that we we had hoped for. And so you can start to use those examples as a way to to get them on board with taking this this new approach. Yep. Thanks very much for taking the time to have the conversation. I appreciate it. It was good to actually capture one of our product rants and <laughs> conversations and have it, you know, have it exist, you know, seeming, you know, presumably in perpetuity now. Any final thoughts that you'd like to make about and anything that we didn't uh, that we didn't cover that you're just dying to share with people around product mindset and culture and teams? I think something that's critical to any organization and whether it's a product management transformation or a data transformation or whatever it may be and hopefully all those trans- transformations are happening. <laughs> you know, I hate to see, uh, I, I, when I hear agile transformation and don't hear data and design and, and product transformation happening at the same time, I get a little bit worried. That's when you just want to write, you know, sort of cover your eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it can be a little bit scary and it's probably not going to result in the end result that you're hoping for. Really what I've found to be the most effective thing is when it really the thing that I found to be incredibly important when it comes to those type of things is to have a continuous improvement model in place. The transformation should be should be ongoing, you know, and, and never never stopping because everything is is improving, right? We didn't have DevOps ten years ago. We didn't have Agile twenty years ago. But do you think the challenge with continuous improvement is? And I'll go back. Cause I think a, I try to tie back to how we are human nature and how we're innately wired as humans, we don't do great with continuous improvement, right? Because we want to think there are finish lines. Mm -hmm. We want to think that there are doors that we can close so that we can compartmentalize, right? And we can say, ah, we did the agile transformation. We're good, right? We did this other thing. We're good, right? I now have a Fitbit. So now I'm going to be fitter and healthier. I'm good. Right. And so the continuous improvement, and I agree with you, by the way, I think the challenge is we're so flawed as humans that continuous improvement is really, really hard for us because we don't we don't want to think about the fact that, oh, my goodness, everything is always a work in progress. That makes me crazy. Have you heard of Netflix's culture deck? 
Oh, sure. Okay. So, so their defini- definition of culture really resonated with me. In their mind, culture is what gives Netflix the best chance of continuous success for many generations of technology and people. And so it's, it's not about great product right now. It's about having a culture that helps us have great products over time and a culture that helps us continually improve them. In my mind, that's an awesome definition of culture. It's what's going to support your ongoing success from a team over time. And so when I think about continuous improvement, that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. So do you think that, and I agree with you, so I'm just you know, playing you know, devil's advocate on the other sure. side of it, is Netflix, I think everybody could look at it and say, great product company, incredibly innovative, disruptive, right? They, they almost don't even, they don't care if they cannibalize themselves, right? Uh, from a product perspective, business model, et cetera. So that's why they're held up as this sort of, um, you know, bastion of, of this is the way you should do it. I think that, so they attract people with the right mindset, right? Because of their culture and their legacy, of have of doing it this mm-hmm. way, right? And 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 saying, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Most companies do not have that culture, do not have that mindset, and most people don't, right? So that becomes, so there are these pockets, right? Of examples like Netflix, and maybe Google. We could throw in there, and you know, a, a other handful of names. But by and large, most company cultures and most people are not comfortable being yeah. uncomfortable. To be honest, I think that type of mindset's table stakes nowadays. And I think that you can, I think it actually ends up being a de-risking function more than a uh, a risky kind of endeavor or a risky way to work. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree, by the way. Yeah. I think we, I think we have to, I think we have to get used to, and I think we have to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's exactly right. Uh that doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't make sense to try to roll that out across an entire organization because you, if you've never done it before. And so I think that the trick with that is, it kind of ties back to what we were discussing earlier. The trick with that is, how do we pilot this and figure out what works for us in a way that's, that's safe, you know, and falls over a million times before we figure it out, right? It falls over time after time before we figure it out. And so that's part of the you know, you have to create a, 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 a safe environment for people to, to fail and to learn what's going to work for, the, for that organization. Yeah, because this goes to, you know, in a corporate innovation a little bit, right? And, and skunk works and, and those kinds of things. And although, again, there have been pockets uh, where it's worked, by and large, most companies that have set up, most enterprises that have set up innovation operations, even disconnected ones have not really seen you know the 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 fruit and the outcomes that they expected from those and i think it's because you can set up a skunk works you know disconnected physically hierarchically politically etc but if that disconnected innovation operation still has the same culture and the same sort of mindset of the the mothership you just have an operation now that is tangential and disconnected from the, the, the mothership. But to the points that you were making, if you don't feel safe there to go try things and, and learn things and do things that maybe don't work, and if you're not 
given the autonomy, mm -hmm. right, to push things forward that might be outside the pale of the organization yeah. and even sort of the overall strategic plan of the organization, then it's just it's just a disconnected you know operation that that is not going to drive the outcomes that are desired because people there are not doing anything and, and they're not operating any differently than people at the mothership. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of of Innovation Labs is that they should offer that autonomy. They should give freedom from bureaucracy and they should allow for experimentation. And you can spin up an innovation lab and hire people quickly to do that versus trying to to change that entire mindset in of, an, of an organization. I think one of the benefits of an innovation lab or one benefit that an innovation lab should have is you should take what's working inside of that lab and apply it back into the core business. I think everyone should be innovating to some degree. And right. some of the best innovations that I've seen actually happened inside of the core business because we had people thinking with a product mindset. I've probably seen more successes come from core businesses innovating than I have from, from innovation, innovation labs innovating. And so if you can model that out in an innovation lab and start to bring it into your core business in ways that make sense, then it can be incredibly impactful in ways outside of what your original tent was for your innovation lab. Right, for sure. Well, thanks for taking the time to get together and chatting. Always enjoy it. You've got great perspectives on product, product management, product discipline. Thank you for everything you've done for the Columbus product community and, and you know, um, even more broadly than that, um, you know, across the region. Great seeing you. Yeah, it's great being here. Thanks for everything and, and look forward to next time. Sounds good. This is Ryan Frederick, principal from AWH. This has been Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about product. See you next time. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.